Welcome to My Name is Not Steve, the podcast by storytellers about storytelling with people not named Steve. Hey, this is Pete Bauer. And I'm Dorothea Bauer. And this is My Name is Not Steve. We are still not named Steve. Nope. Well, I kind of am. I admitted my confirmation name is Steve, but I'm really not named Steve. Well, I'm not named Steve at all, so at least I'm honest. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> So, Dorothea, here we are, season two, episode two. Pretty exciting. It is super duper exciting. So, why don't we talk about a little bit of the all y'all feedback we got? Oh, my gosh. Well, my cousin's wife said that it is a very popular phrase in the South. So, there's that. Yeah, but can we really trust her? I mean... Well, I think we should value her opinion very highly, especially (laughs) when it comes to things of quality, as she's one of the devoted listeners to this podcast. Oh, that's true. (laughs) We should be building her up, not tearing her down. Yeah. All right. Well, there was also a friend of ours. She also commented on the all situation. She was also supportive of your false and inaccurate assumption. Dad, your problem is you're from Massachusetts and you just haven't acclimated to the South yet. <laughs> yeah, because I moved here when I was six or seven. Maybe you just dismissed it. Yeah, I probably did. I probably did. I absorbed it, accepted it, and have since dismissed it. Have you ever said the word y'all seriously? I, probably, I guess. I don't know. I mean, you've been married to mom for quite some time, so she, I'd imagine yeah. it would have rubbed off on you at but some point. Your mother absorbs. She's like a sponge of dialects because whoever <laughs> she's around, she starts speaking in that. And it's kind of weird because you're like, I don't want people to be upset. You know, like I've told you this before, but there was this guy at Nickelodeon called Conrad and he was the janitor. And he, I think he legitimately thought that if he sounded like another language... <laughs> He was speaking another language. (laughs) So Nickelodeon had this really horrendously slow elevator. So I was in the elevator once with him and there was this Asian couple because we had a lot of obviously visitors from international locations. So there was this Asian couple in there and they were speaking their native tongue and I'm just waiting patiently for the elevator to go up and Conrad decided to engage them in his own version of their language. (laughs) So it was like, so they're talking legitimately and he's like, hoing, tang, hoing, tang, tang, wang. And they're looking at him like, what the hell are you talking about? And I was just wanting to like implode. I was just in the corner going, please hurry, please hurry. This elevator's so slow. So anyway, I've always been really cognizant of and aware of of when people kind of accidentally slip into other people's accents. I think it's normal. Well, I too have that problem. When I'm speaking with someone who has an accent, I tend to take over that accent and it'll come out when I'm talking. And it, I always feel so bad because I'm like, I'm really not trying to make fun of you right, right. or be offensive in any way. I was listening to an interview with a Scottish actor and then someone asked me a question and I replied in a Scottish accent. And I'm sitting there going, what is happening? Yeah, that's a little... <laughs> I'm not even talking to the Scottish person. But, you know, we have relatives up in North Carolina and Georgia. So when we'll visit, my wife will just suddenly start saying hi, y'all, and just get this accent thing going on. And But mom legitimately has four accents when she talks. That's true. I mean, that's a legitimate she has, one. She has her southern accent. She has her Canadian accent. She yeah, has, she does say about. She has her Jewish mother accent. Yes. And then the normal Midwestern yeah. Accent that yeah. she has. For a girl who was born and raised in Florida, <laughs> that's a really interesting collection. Well, everyone retires here, so maybe that's kind of... And her dad did speak with a Canadian accent in certain times. Yeah, so it's just weird because it just comes out. She'll be like, well... And it's- my grandfather was not Canadian, just to, <laughs> to put that on record. I have no idea where this issue came it was, from. I think it was, it's in his gene pool, though. But she'll just say, all right, we're out and about. 
Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, where is that coming from? Anyway, so um, the y'all situation is, in my mind, is still undetermined. Well, you know what's interesting, though, is that speaking of accents, whenever I'm reading something by a British author in my head, I read it in a British accent. That's weird. Is that weird? Yeah. yeah. I've never read Harry they're, they're Potter words. or any of Jane Austen words. in an American accent in my head. It's a book with no, like, there's no but I accent knew they were English. insinuated. And unless it's realized is spelled, you know, with an S. Well, they're, they're English authors, though. I know. So I know that the story is English. And but so in my head, I read it in an English accent. I'm certain the editors have gone out of their way to Americanize the book. They did. So you're basically betraying all of their work. <laughs> nice. That's nice. Well, what can I say? So what are we Not talking Jane about? Not Jane Austen. She's been dead for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and so are her editors. So. <laughs> so what are we talking about today, Dorothea? Your writing process. Isn't that the whole point of this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I thought so. I've never really known what I was doing here. So. <laughs> <laughs> if that's the case, I just want to apologize to everybody. Who's been listening this long? Yeah, I feel like we should promote this podcast more. <laughs> I feel like we insult ourselves and this podcast more often than I'm... we say people should listen to it. No, I think that's right. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Don't listen to us. Don't buy our while, books while you're listening to Just... our podcast. Don't listen to us. <laughs> that's nice. No, we want you to support us wholeheartedly. I think it's our humility. As my father used to say, we take great pride in our humility. I think we want you to support us. Just acknowledge what you're getting. Right. Which is a substandard podcast is one of the things. Well, I do get asked questions every once in a while about the writing process. And Lost and Found, the next book in the Gabby Wells series, has been challenging in a lot of interesting ways. One of the big challenges I had in that book was there was like three or four chapters that never worked over. Like I would keep rewriting them and rewriting them and rewriting them and they never worked. And and the one thing I've learned, at least in my brain, the way my brain works is that the, the basic plot structure, the, the going from A to B to C, so to speak, has to be just a really simple thing. Cause I've realized that in, in real life, people's motivations are very, very simple and basic. And so their impulse to go somewhere is really very simple. And then maybe the path they take is a little convoluted. If you look at most crime, it's based on greed or sex or envy or something like that. And those are very basic instincts. So, so whenever I get, I struggle with writing, it's because my plot is just too convoluted. It's just that I'm trying to justify things I like that I've written into a plot and it just never works. It's really hard. And that challenge I eventually solved by making it exceptionally simple. I remember I was having this trouble with the character Emma. And the second book is really uh, the relationship between Emma and Gabby. So after a lot of rewrites and everything, what I ended up doing was just simplifying it a lot. And I, I took like the, I think it ended up being a total of like five or six chapters that I ended up cutting down into two. But it just made things move along really, really fast. And that's just one of the things that... In a story, you you know, we talked about about you need to make a, a wow product, and you can't just give up on on trying to fix something when you think it's it'll get by. It really needs to be the best that it can be, and and writers inherently know what's wrong. They they know what doesn't feel right. They always know that, and until it feels right, you just have to keep rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. And it was annoying. I mean, it was it was weeks and weeks and weeks of rewriting the same five or six chapters. It was awful and then i ended up basically cutting all of them so that was nice 
Well, isn't that kind of your MO at this point? <laughs> of writing a lot and then writing throwing a lot it and away? Then throwing it away. No. Um, <laughs> that, makes, that makes me so happy about my future. And writing series is, is so complicated for a lot of authors because you have your plan and then the story changes on you sometimes halfway through and you have to figure out how you still layer in the elements that need to be layered in at the beginning so it is more obvious toward the end of the series what you've been building up to. But at the same time, you have to be true to those moments when what you're writing isn't working and fixing that in the best way that you know how. At least you aren't a fantasy writer because those people have maps. They have like wars and histories and kingdoms and there's whole... It's like creating a world history that doesn't exist. And I can't even imagine the stress I would be under if I were a fantasy author who had to change something significant in the story. <laughs> yeah, I can't even comprehend that. I'm way too impatient and way too lazy to do that, honestly. What's interesting to me is that when the, f- the first book we were, we've talked about before that we wrote and threw away, no, I just remember literally, and I still do this sometimes when I'm whenever I'm struggling... I'll just write and I'll go, what's my word count? Am I close to being done? I just need to know that I'm close to being done because the joy isn't in what I'm writing, which is obviously a problem and you have to fix that. But when you're struggling and you're going through your stuff, you're like, am I getting any closer to the end so I can just look at it and then say, all right, it, this draft is done and then I can I can readdress it later. Well, it's like with video games. You know, you just got to reach the checkpoint. You can replay <laughs> for a higher score at a later time. That's right. <laughs> But it was really, really difficult. And there's a rumor in my family that I always assume things are easier when I begin them. You do. Than they actually are. You absolutely do that. I don't know. You underestimate everything. I don't think that's <laughs> You underestimate Give what me things one good will example. cost. You underestimate the skill and time required. Hmm. You underestimate everything. Such as? Well, for example... When I was growing up, Mm -hmm. there was a room that you wanted. It was your office. Yes. And you wanted to convert it into a movie room because we (laughs) love movies. Yep. So you didn't think it'd be a huge project. No. You didn't think it'd be that expensive. No. You just thought, you know, you'd bang it out over the weekend. Sure. And you tore apart the entire room, Mm -hmm. gutted it completely, and then realized you didn't have any tools, nor did you know how to build anything or (laughs) put a room back together. So the room stayed gutted for several months until your coworker offered you a little bit of help. (laughs) Another example is that you always seem to think for years that you could install a ceiling fan without exploding. Despite the fact that history never (laughs) supported you. In that particular <laughs> statement. I will say that <laughs> ceiling fans are really made by demons because <laughs> they should be so much easier. And I've installed enough mm. of them to know mm. that they should be. There's some basic design flaws in ceiling fans that here's what happened. I, I, I have a very short memory. <laughs> here's what happened. What happened is that whenever my dad was installing a ceiling fan, my mother would take my brother and I out of the house. That should just indicate. No, she was just what? respecting the work. <laughs> she was respecting the work. Uh-huh. Now the movie room, I will, I will grant you, it did, it legitimately did not occur to me that I really didn't know what to do next. Or until, have the tools. Or have, right. And none of that really occurred to me until I had actually gutted the room. And we just had cement floors. And all the stuff in there was was scattered throughout the house. And, you know, look, my, my weekend project took nine months. Hmm. 
and a little more money than I anticipated. <laughs> Weren't you in Lowe's like every day? Didn't the oh, they all knew sales me. associates yeah. know you by name? It was really quite sad. <laughs> and fortunately, my friend Bill came over and he had tools and knowledge. He was both my help in, in good ways and my help in bad ways. So when he was helping me, what we I had this one center console that I had sketched out and and he helped me build that. And then after that, he said, all right, you know how to do it. I'll just leave my tools here and you can finish the room. So that was really great because then I get to work on my own time. But the thing that Bill Which also... you took a little bit longer than you anticipated. But I mean, I'm I could sure. work. I didn't need Bill to show up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Bill, I have, some, I have an hour at 9 to 10 at night. Why don't you come over? But the other thing that Bill did, which only exacerbates my, my issue, is that... <laughs> I said, Bill, how'd you, who taught you how to do all this stuff? And he's like, oh, I don't know. I just figured it out on my own. I just figure if I don't know how to do it, I'll just keep going until I figure it out. So that goes into my whole underestimating and just going, oh, I know what I'll do. So like this whole novel series exists because I was certain I couldn't write the novel series. And then I wrote the one paragraph and you guys liked it. And I said, well, if I can write one paragraph, I can write all the paragraphs. What's really and, entertaining um, for me as your child is that you still have this tendency to underestimate things. It's just part of who you are. Own that. And <laughs> fine. But what's really entertaining are the moments that you underestimate how long it will take <laughs> to get somewhere because mom hates being late. Yeah. She takes so much pride in showing up somewhere when she says she'll be there. And yeah, that but, is an exact quote. No, That's, if, 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 par- if a party starts at 7 and no one's really showing up till 8.30, we'll be there at 7. And when she knows we have to leave by a certain time, because if you don't leave by then, she'll be late. And you're like, no, we can get there a little bit later. It'll only take this time. Traffic's not an issue. There's no construction ever. And (laughs) all the roads will be empty when we drive them. I don't understand the the concern. The car rides are usually very tense. Well, for her. (laughs) And then for the rest of us. Happy wife, happy life. <laughs> there are also times where I overestimate the work. Like in our previous house, there were some... <laughs> there were closet doors that I never affixed knobs to. And so you guys... How did you guys open them for 13 straight years? We put our feet under the door because they were doors that they folded outwards yeah. Um, yeah. in a hall closet. And we would put our feet under the door and pull the door out and then push it out. Yeah. Putting those knobs was going to be time consuming. Yeah. And then we moved. And how long did it take you? I think it was almost, I mean, it was almost 10 minutes. (laughs) So (laughs) for what, like 10 years, 10 years, we opened those doors with our feet. (laughs) 10, dad. It took five minutes. (laughs) 10 minutes. 10 years. Once you installed those doorknobs because we were moving, I kept opening them with my feet out of habit. Well, that just means you're mentally incompetent. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So we also had a doorknob in our current Ten house years. that didn't work well. Ten. Until I fixed it in literally about 90 seconds. It was broken for about three months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 90 seconds. So I don't know. This gift that I have, <laughs> I, I seem to overestimate the time and work effort in the small things and, mm-hmm. uh, and drastically underestimate the work effort in large things. Yeah. Because when when I'm plotting out a story, I'll look at the plot line and I go, oh, in this book, this is what happens. But then, you know, like I had this issue with Lost and Found and I had this issue with the next book, Sins and Suicide. Lost and Found is really about Emma, as I said, and Sins and Suicide is really about Scott and his relationship with Gabby. 
And both the times I'm like, oh, that, that's a good idea. We should have a story about Emma and Gabby's relationship or Scott's and Gabby's relationship. And then as I'm writing it, I'm like, wow, I don't know Emma well enough or Scott well enough to write out that relationship. Which is a problem I actually think not a lot of authors have. I think this is an issue you have because of your background as a screenwriter. Because when you are writing screenplays, as we've discussed on this podcast before, you're writing blueprints and the actors come in and make the characters their own. Right. So you just have to provide a basic framework of who the character is and then the actors take it and they turn it into something completely different or the director takes it and turns it into something completely different. And that collaborative nature is something we loved about the film process. But at the same time, one thing that you'd been struggling with is you realized that you were working with a framework of these characters and that they hadn't become real to you yet. Yeah, because in all the other previous incarnations of the Gabby Wells universe, they were pieces in her universe, but they weren't they weren't really standalone pieces in her universe. They were just kind of part of her puzzle. When it, you just take two of those pieces and make it the whole story about that, you really had to flesh out who they are. But that's been really awesome, actually, uh, from a creative perspective, to have to kind of delve into those characters and really figure it out. But it's just surprising to me, because we've been talking about these characters for so long, and, and I totally see them in my head and whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like the difference between friends and family. Right. You know what I mean? Like, like so a lot of these characters, Gabby was family to me, but the rest of the characters were friends of Gabby's that visited the house, so to speak. And so whenever I interacted with these characters in my head, it was like friends coming over to the house, but I didn't go home with them. You know what I mean? I didn't know what all their family issues were in the house if they didn't affect Gabby's life. And so that's been the challenge is I've actually had to stalk these characters and, <laughs> and invade their homes and, and uncover all of their, the, the real subtleties of their relationships. And it's been, it's really been fun, but it's also frustrating. Again, I go back to the under, I underestimate things. I'm like, oh, I'll just have a story about Emma and Gabby. And then I'm like, well, in this one story where it's just these two, you know, I know what Emma does and all as a peripheral character here and there, but when it's just them, I mean, the end result of this is that you end up having a story with really well fleshed out and well-rounded characters, which will make the whole series a lot better. But going into it, you know, I'm, I've, like you said, from the screenplay perspective, I've always been a, a plot guy. I can figure out plot pieces and move them around, and I get that right away. Once I get the plot because of the screenwriting history, I just start writing because that's that's always been the point that I start writing is I, I get the plot, start going. And now the character pieces are just a lot more fleshed out. And that's, um, it's been fun. And I think that's going to be so helpful to your stories too, because as we've discussed personally before, it's really the characters that draw people in. It's why we watch the shows we watch. Some shows have really cool plots, but at the end of the day, if you're spending an hour of your time watching a television show every week, it's because you like the characters and you want to spend time with them. And for me, that's what it was like with my favorite stories growing up. You know how some kids, they dive into you know, sports or they dive into their passions, whatever it is, art, music. For me, I dove into fiction. I love fictional characters. I love stories, getting to know those characters, watching them grow, predicting what the future will be. And it's exciting to create that world and then jump back into it. Yeah. And the other thing that I've had to figure out a little more than I anticipated, again, (laughs) it keeps coming back to haunt me, is the spiritual journey for Gabby. So she needs to have a beginning and end point in every book that leads to the next beginning and end point of the next book. And then all of those books put together are her overall faith journey. And, you know, like if you look at really good series, like we like Castle, and that's a good example of they had a plan 
so if you haven't watched Castle, the story is about Richard Castle, an author who works with Kate Beckett, a police detective. Kate Beckett's mother was murdered when she was younger, and so she spends all of her off time trying to figure out who killed her mother. That's her faith journey, so to speak, and comparatively to Gabby. And so every season was that they had to have that, it's kind of like a book, they had to have the beginning and end part of Kate's journey, and they would reveal a little bit more about the true nature of her mother's crime throughout the season, then usually a big cliffhanger at the end for that season. And you have to know where that ends. And one of the problems that they've kind of had with Castle, and it's been one of our favorite shows, is they kind of ended the show. They I don't want to say really well. They absolutely ended the show. This last season, season finale, was a series finale. I honestly don't know what they're going to do next season. But they weren't sure they were going to be able to get all the actors back because their contracts are up. I realized that they were unsure of that because they had this major storyline that normally would have lasted sprinkled in two or three seasons. And they set up the whole beginning of this last season with Castle having been missing for months, right? And no one knows where he is. And then he shows up and he has no memory of what happened. And then that would normally be sprinkled in over a couple of seasons and we're going to uncover what truly happened. And they squeezed all that in into one episode. One One episode. episode. It was so good and so irritating at the same time. Yeah, you because you're like, oh, well, I kind of am looking forward to the Kate Beckett model. I'm really looking forward to seeing how this unfolds over the next couple of seasons. So I'm watching this going, they have either no faith in this storyline, so they're just dumping it, or they have no faith that the show's going to last long enough to tell this storyline, so they're dumping it. But either way... It's kind of like talking about Kate Beckett's mother's murder in one episode. The problem Castle has always had from a writing standpoint is that the show was never about Castle. He is the main character of the show. The show is named after him. But the show has always really been about Beckett. And as entertaining as the show has been, that is a fault on the writer's part, in my opinion. Yeah, but it has to be that way because Richard Castle's character is fluff. He's the comic relief. We did our thing, Nikki and Babs, right? And Bab's character was kind of flaky and nutty. And Nikki's character, the person you played, was more solid and grounded. And you couldn't have a show with just Bab's because there's no substance there. It ends up just being irritating because there's no context to put that sort of irreverence in. And Castle without Beckett is just an annoying guy. So it needs to be that. And that's why they were trying to flip it around. They finished the Kate line. They were going to give this Castle storyline where their relationship and she could be the one using her police skills to solve his crime instead of hers. But they really struggled this last season. Once they got rid of the Kate Beckett storyline, they really struggled what to do with those characters. That's absolutely true. Yeah. But again, I think they set themselves up to have that problem at some point down the road. I'm not saying it wasn't necessary to base the show around Beckett. I have loved the show. You know, I've watched every episode. But I do think that that is a problem that they set up at the beginning. Like they were going to reach that point eventually. Yeah, I think they were a victim of success, honestly, because oftentimes shows set up this premise and they never reach it because the show gets canceled. So in a perfect world, the show would have ended when Beckett's murder situation was resolved. But they were still really popular. They were trying to reinvent it. If you look at NCIS, they've gone through these cycles of storylines and they've succeeded because it wasn't one big story that they were doing. They basically break things into like one or two season long arcs and then they bring up a new one and bring up a new one and bring up a new one. So it doesn't get stuck in that whole, this has been our whole universe for seven straight years. Now what do we do? They don't, they don't have that problem. I remember there was one family vacation that we went on when I was a kid. I think it was to Arizona. 
we were at a hotel and there was a USA Today for free for the guests of the hotel. And I picked it up and I was reading it. And in the entertainment section, there was a whole article about shows that knew when to bow out and how to do it successfully. And one of the things they talked about in that article was the shows that had a plan from the beginning and they stuck to that plan and they finished the show the way that they had always intended to. And the other type of successful closure was when the showrunners recognized when the show was coming to its organic end and embraced that. A lot of shows don't do either one of those things. One of my favorite shows of all time is a children's show. It was on Nickelodeon called Avatar The Last Airbender. I loved that show as a kid. And I would argue that that show and its successor, Legend of Korra, have been so successful because the creators of that show went out saying Avatar was going to be a three-season show. This is a three-season story. And Legend of Korra is going to be a four-season show. It is a four-season story. And knowing that allows you to build everything the way that you need to. Right. And there's no wasted episode because it's all tied to that very compact known schedule. And sometimes shows are going to end too early. Like there's audience there, but not enough. And fortunately, I think it's the Firefly effect. But networks have kind of learned to, when a show's about to die, but it has enough fans and they want to replace it, they'll give it the last couple episodes or, or they'll extend it a short season or a full season to go, this is it. So if you want to wrap up your storyline, wrap it up here because that's all you get. And, and it's very gratifying. There's nothing worse than, than having a story that's really awesome that you love that just stops occurring. I will say as much as I crave more episodes of Firefly and I wish that that show had not been canceled, it has impacted network television in a way I don't think any other show has because fans were so upset when that show was canceled and they to this day have fought for more episodes that networks I really think have learned their lesson. They've learned the power of fandoms. You know, actually, Star Trek did that, too. The original Star Trek. Not right away, though. I mean, there were science fiction fans. I was way too young to remember this. But there were science fiction fans that missed that show. But when it went into reruns is when people are like, wait, why'd you end it? It's supposed to be a five-year mission, and it's only three years long. Why, why did you end it? So... That's where people wanted more, and that's how the movies came about and everything like that. It's interesting, though, because there was a case with one show that we really, really loved, because, as you know, I'm a fan of science fiction, that was given that extra season to wrap up the show, but actually should have ended earlier than it did. You're talking about Fringe? I am talking about Fringe. Fringe should have ended with the season finale of season three. Yeah, it was awesome. It was awesome. And if it had ended that way, it would have been talked about forever. Yes. But it was renewed. And I honestly think the writers weren't expecting that. I don't either. And they didn't know what to do with it. Because you could tell. (laughs) What was so great about the ending of season three is one of the main characters at the end, one of these people says, well, of course, one of those main characters never existed. And you're like, and you're like what? what? And that was the end of it. And that was it. It would, been, it would have been talked about forever. It would have been awesome. And then they got renewed and they're like, uh. So then they had a kind of a crappy fourth season. Oh, it was so bad. I loved that No, and that then, they had, the, then and they had like the, the even, they reinvented it for the fifth season and that was it. All in all, I do like how the show concluded. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the show. It's, it's a show I wouldn't mind owning in its entirety. That being said, it's not as powerful as it would have been if it had ended in season three. The only other way that shows can last so long, and and again, we're talking about this because a similar idea with if you're doing a book series, is you look at a show like Bones. I know you don't like that show. Well, you don't like the relationships on that show, but I don't like I don't like the show. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to be nice, but okay. 
But the only way that show works, and it surprises me that it's still on the air, honestly, is that it basically resets almost completely. They've changed it a little bit because a lead actress got pregnant in real life. But they basically reset the relationships every episode. So whatever growth you had, it got reset back to zero or close to zero. And then you go up to 20, you know, and let's say 100 is a full-blown relationship. You'd go up to 90 and then it'd go back to zero and or to back to 10 or something. But the point is, is that there was not a lot of growth. And what NCIS does really well is they allow the characters to grow while level setting the entire group back to zero. Mm-hmm. But the relationships in that group continue to grow and evolve. So that's been an interesting mix, I think. I think the writers of NCIS have done a good job in that respect. Yeah. But, you know, I will give Bones credit. There are two episodes I think are good. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, it's only been on 10 years. I have a hard time, personally, when I don't believe what's happening on screen. Like, I don't... As we all should. But, especially in regards to relationships. My A friend of mine is a diehard romantic, and... I will own the fact that I'm not very romantic. So if it's a romantic thing, I'm not going to be as interested in it. That doesn't mean it's a bad show. It just means it doesn't suit my personal preferences. But she loved this show because of the will they won't they between Booth and Bones. And so she told me to watch it. And I'm like, well, every show has a will they won't they. That's just the nature of television. So I don't know why this one is, you know, clung to her heart so strongly until I watched like the first three seasons. And it was the focal point of every single episode. And I'm like, you can't have a will they, won't they be the singular focal point of almost every single episode for like seven years. That just, that would drive me crazy. But they can (laughs) because they have. Actually, that show drives me nuts because the mystery is not the focal point. It's not. So at the end of the show. it's so anticlimactic. Right. So you have this like whatever the mystery they're solving, there's a dead body with bugs on it and they're figuring everything out. And then they figure it out. And then they bring the guy in and go, yeah, so we know you did this, this, and this, and you're rested. And that's it. And then they go on to the last thing, which is the relationship (laughs) thing. And you're like, really? I invested an hour of my life for, yeah, then we got him. Well, and my two favorite, well, I wouldn't call them favorites. The two episodes I enjoyed (laughs) of Bones, they were the Gravedigger episodes for people who are fans of the show. That was very much about, it was... A relationship-driven episode because the people were in jeopardy. The characters were in jeopardy. But the plot was really cool. And I loved how they unfolded the nature of that crime. So I did enjoy those episodes. But in general, it's just... It's so anticlimactic to be like, oh, by the way, here's everything we know and you're guilty. And I would love in just one cop show, please, just one, have criminals consistently not confess. Yeah. Well, that's why it's, it's not real life. Oh, it's because so in real life, you'd have all the episodes going, I want my lawyer, and then it's law and order, really, is well, what ends up having. And then but what the order was... part is the, the jury and the trial. Law and order is a cool show. I like that show. And it's offshoots. But that's a cool premise for a show, right? Like, what if they know, what if every episode starts off with them knowing who did it? Like, they, this an investigation's been going on for a while, but they have to prove it without any doubt. Like, there's a lot of stress in that as much as trying to find out who did it. And then you can mix it up. Some of them are who did it. Some of it we know, but we must prove it. Look, one of my favorite shows I've been watching (laughs) recently is Perry Mason. And all I know is at the end of that episode, someone blurts out that they're guilty. It's it's a heartfelt heartfelt confession that's very timely. I like that show just because of the world it exists in, not because, you know... You know the person's, someone's going to say, I did it at the end of the show. But that's not the reason you watch it, you know? 
The thing about the early seasons of Perry Mason, which is so cool and so unlike anything that's on television right now, is that he is a lawyer. He is not a cop. He is not there to find the guilty party and bring them to justice. He is there to prove his client is innocent. And he does unethical things to achieve that end. He's borderline unethical. He never crosses the line, but he's really, really close. I would argue he does things that are not illegal, but are no, unethical. That's true. So with the Gabby Wells series, I, I've kind of, it's nine books long, but I have figured out that there's a happy place to pause the series at the end of four. End of Four is a major event in Gabby's journey. It's not the end, but it's kind of like the midpoint, really, if you're to look at a movie script. Yeah. So it can pause there happily and rest, like we talked about last time, if we don't get enough involvement or enthusiasm with it. And then I can go work on other series and then come back to it. And that actually makes me happy because I, I want to do all of them. If I have to pause to do another series to kind of get more readers to the Gabby Wells series... I don't want those people that have invested time in that series to feel unsatisfied. I like for them to at least have a sense of, oh, okay, this part of Gabby's life kind of makes sense now. And then after that, we really tear her life apart. It's really quite sad. Welcome to the dark and mysterious world of Gabby Wells. Yeah, yeah, poor girl. I do love her. I don't treat her nice. As much as God loves Job. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty much it. <laughs> that's actually a really good description. I know. Oh, that's so bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, do you have any fun new recommendations for our listeners? I do. So, recently I was going through a period of my life, you know, you have the spiritual peaks and valleys, and I was going through a valley. So, I thought, you know what? I'm going to watch Jesus of Nazareth. It's, I just love that movie. Um, I know it's kind of 70s and it's very Anglo. It was made for British television, so that's why. I have always found it funny when, when people from foreign lands in deep history always have a British accent. That's always made me laugh. But it's just an awesome representation of the story of Jesus. I feel like in most historical films that I've seen, it really doesn't matter where they are. They all have a British accent. I know. We, we as a society you know, have kind of said, I guess that's the way they sounded. But it's not true. They were speaking Greek and Latin and... But, you know, the interesting thing is that Britain colonized so many places in the world. Now, granted, their accent probably didn't take over. Right. But still, they're yeah, just like, well, Britain before, owned it. So they talked in a British accent. Before Britain existed, no, I know. Though, I'm know. talking about other historical no, films. I understand. It's just it's just funny. Anyway, I really love that movie. I think it's one of the most realistic setting movies. I mean, it really looks like they were they just put a camera down in that time. It was It's really pretty amazing. But one of the things I really loved about it is the way they structured different things. The, the, the director, Franco Zeffirelli, did a brilliant, brilliant job of taking things that we had heard or seen in relation to the story of Christ, especially the Bible readings that we've heard over and over and over again, and bringing new life to them. For example, visually, he would end a scene, a major scene, so it would look like a painting that you've seen in relation to that moment whether it's Mary visiting Elizabeth or Jesus acknowledging that Peter's correct and he is the Son of God, that kind of thing. Awesome, awesome visuals. But the the best thing that he does is that he takes the stories that we've heard, like he takes the prodigal son story and he makes it a story between Matthew, the tax collector, and Peter. And when you watch that scene, you understand the prodigal son story better than any homily you've heard in Mass. And one of the really cool things that they did that I noticed this time was that when Jesus says the Beatitudes and he's going to say, he's going to introduce the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, to us, it's after he's admitted to his apostles that he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. 
And so when you know that he has that in his head and he says the Our Father, it's a public version of a very private prayer between a father and son. And so the whole thing adds so much more meaning when he's talking about that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, knowing that he's going to be facing temptations in the garden, that we should forgive those who sin against us because he's going to be on the cross and do the same thing that to provide daily bread when he's going to institute the Eucharist, you know, and that to not lead him into temptation, but deliver him from evil, deliver him from the temptation of Satan in the garden. Like it becomes a very personal, weighty, deep, private prayer between Jesus prior to the garden and his passion to his father that he happens to do publicly. And that I just never got that before. So that was awesome. If, if you can watch it, it's really great. They also sell a, a Blu-ray version that's actually the Italian version, but you can turn on English, the English language. But it's, it's Blu-ray, and it's so much better quality than the DVD. So that's my recommendation. Great, great movie. Well, in our last podcast, I said I'd be recommending some of the classic books, and I'll get back to that next time. But today, I want to recommend a book that was one of my favorite books when I was a kid, and it's still one of my favorite books to this day, called The Giver. I read it when I think I was in middle school. It's a very short book. It really shouldn't take you very long to get through, but it's one of my favorite stories because most utopia, dystopian, future future tense books tend to be very war-based. There's going to be a really great battle, and The Giver kind of throws that away. It goes down a completely different path, and I love all the consequences of that story. So if you haven't read it, it is one of my favorite books, which is kind of funny because I think I was the only person in my class who liked it, but uh, definitely as an adult, you'll be able to see all the layers in there, that all the weight of that world. Is that a surprise, Dorothea? Because you hate bones. You know, <laughs> I mean, can we really rubber. trust your well, judgment Dad, here? Fifty Shades of Grey is a national bestseller, so I'm not really <laughs> going with the populace on this. You know, um, as a side note, that's one of the arguments with independent publishing is is you hear the traditional publishers always talking about they're trying to preserve, you know, the artwork of literature. And they're the same people that release Snooky's book. You know what I mean? You're like, well, maybe you're just in it for the money. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm going with. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine who is also an author, and she's like, yeah, I don't know if if I'll ever go from self-publishing to being traditionally published. They'd have to offer me certain things that I cannot do by myself. And then she said, but, you know, honestly, if I reach that level of success, will I need their help? Because they only approach people who are successful. And I looked at her because I'm so pessimistic about certain industries. And I looked at her and I'm like, yeah, they'll only approach you if they think that you're rich and want some of it. Yep. (laughs) That's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. All right, Dorothea, there's episode two of season two. Woohoo. Yeah, pretty exciting stuff. I think so. Well, not really. Out of 10, I guess. Everything give it like we a talk six. about is brilliant. <laughs> oh, is that what it is? Gosh, I've been trying to explain that to my wife our entire marriage, and she's just not bought into it. I don't, I don't understand because I think I'm brilliant. And you're not agreeing with me, so that doesn't help. All right, so if you'd like to contact us, you can email us at pete at petebauerbooks.com, B A U E R petebauerbooks.com or you can leave a comment in the comments section if your name is steve and you would like to defend it we would love to hear from you so please reach out to us man i would love that (laughs) seriously that'd be interesting also please uh, rate us on itunes so please do that if you can and if you have anything that you want us to talk about drop us a line any book recommendations you have you can drop us a line or leave it in the comment section and we'll be more than happy to chat it up 
Thanks for joining us. We'll see you guys next time. 